Hello, I'm David Lee, and this is the Sustainable Scotland podcast brought to you by The Scotsman, Scotland's national newspaper since 1817, now bringing fresh and relevant content to 21st century audiences. Sustainable Scotland looks at how Scotland is doing in its efforts to be cleaner and greener, and whether this generation is leaving the world in a better state for the next. This episode is brought to you in partnership with one of the UK's leading law firms, Shepherd and Wedderburn, and examines how farmers across rural Scotland are coping with increasing environmental expectations at a time when they also face huge financial challenges. How are they balancing economic, environmental, and social considerations to ensure their rural businesses have a truly sustainable future. I'm joined today by three experts. Richard Leslie is a partner at Shepherd and Wedderburn, who specializes in advising clients in the rural sector. Hazel Anderson is a senior associate in Shepherd and Wedderburn's rural team, whose family also runs a cattle farm in Northeast Scotland. And Fiona Smith from Westerton Farmers, a family farming business now in its fourth generation and more than 100 years old, which is based near Lawrence Kirk in Aberdeenshire. Welcome to you all. And Richard, if I can start with you, can you set the scene a little bit here? What is the big change in the support network for rural businesses that's affecting the farming community? And what is driving that change? Thanks, David. I think to take us back uh, when the UK joined the European Union, the big driver then was in food uh, security and farmers were paid for producing food. So we built up excesses of food. You may remember the milk lake and the butter mountain. So we then switched to an area-based payment where farmers were getting paid per hectare. And what you found was that farmers, do the minimum amount of farming, didn't actually have to produce an awful lot of food. So we've now left the European Union and both the English government, the Scottish government, the involved governments are looking at new ways of getting payments to farmers. Uh, there's a new agriculture bill going through a consultation process, and there's going to be an environmental element, a sustainable element to the payments that farmers will get in the future. And this will be linked to how they uh, produce their food, but also how they operate their farms in terms of uh, lowering their greenhouse gas emissions uh, and dealing with carbon. Um, to do this, the farmers have got farmer-led climate change groups on various sectors, arable, beef, dairy, pigs, etc. And they're looking at how best each sector can reduce their carbon footprint. So I think that sort of sets the scene and that won't come into being until the 2025, 2026. That fits very neatly into the Scottish government's net zero by 2045 plan. And what about on a practical level, Richard? What what does that mean, what you've just said? You've set the policy scene. What does that mean for farm businesses in a practical day-to-day -day basis? Farmers will have to go, before they can get their subsidy, will have to fill in forms. So any thought of less red tape now that we've left uh, uh, European Union is probably not going to be the case. They'll have to do uh, carbon audits of their farm. They'll also have to have produce a land management plan to show how they're going to be increasing biodiversity, dealing with runoff, lowering fertilizer emissions to water courses, uh, dealing with uh, renewable energy aspects to their farm. So there's going to be any number of different ways that farmers will be, be able to obtain these payments, depending on the sector, depending on their farm. And Hazel, when we talk about sustainability, um, 
I often see farmers arch their eyebrows at rural events when they're told they need to be more sustainable. Uh, haven't farmers always had to be sustainable just to survive? A lot of there's a lot of sustainable practices in farming, and one way of looking at it sustainable is most farms are passed successfully from one generation to the next. Um, you know, my family have been in farming for more generations than I can actually remember at this moment. And I think there's a difference between sustainability on an environmental basis and what's sustainability from a business perspective. And I think what Richard was just talking about in the change of the payments and subsidy regimes is perhaps trying to align the two uh, to make sure that people can actually still turn a profit whilst looking after the environment. And it remains to be seen at this early stage whether that's actually going to, to come into fruition. And what do you think about how, how farm businesses have coped with this idea of sustainability over the years is often tied in with diversification and moving away what might, from what might be seen as inverted commas traditional farming. Do you think we will see more diversification as a result of the, the sort of policy changes and funding changes Richard is, has talked about? And what kind of areas do you think more farms might move into? Well, I think the ultimate goal for most farmers is to pass the farm on to the next generation um, if they've got young people that are coming up and are keen and they've got energy. So there's two sides to that. One is that if a farm wants to be sustainable from a family perspective, they need to have a good succession plan in place. Um, that can start with as little as a conversation. Um, but there's so much that with a good lawyer and a good accountant, what you can do to help steer those conversations in a family. And I suppose that leads into what you were asking about diversification, because any diversification will require investment. It will cost money. It takes a lot of energy, a lot of creativity. And you can only do that if, for example, the younger generation are certain that mum and dad aren't going to pull the rug from under their feet. Um, so partnerships in particular are a very flexible model that you can use. There's all sorts of different company structures that the younger generation can use to build up a bit of equity within the family partnership, I suppose. Um, as to diversification, another big factor to consider is personality. Um, most traditional farmers are used to perhaps dealing with their tractor dealerships, um, dealing with the bank dealing with the mart, they're maybe not used to dealing with the public. Um, so I always caution people, there's, I've had a few clients in the last couple of years, especially after COVID, looking into um, tourism accommodation. Um, it felt like for a while, two years ago, people would pay exorbitant amounts of money to stay in a tatty box on a farm for a couple of weeks. Um, but that only works if the person who's facing the guests actually likes people better than they do cows, I think, which is quite important. Okay, thank you. Um, Fiona, um, to, to come to you, can you just tell us a little bit about Westerton and how the business has kind of evolved and diversified over the years and, and what does it do? What's the range of activities that Westerton's involved in now? Yeah, it's, well, we it's varied over the 100 years that the family has owned the, the farms in the area. So we've got Cairnton, we've got Westerton of Pataro and Mill of Conveth. And over the hundred years, we've, we've been through various enterprises. My grandfather was um, a very successful pig breeder. 
We've had cattle. At the moment, we're mainly arable. We did used to have flowers. We grew daffodils and sold the bulbs um, all around the world through Grampian growers. So we've had quite a, a lot in our history. Where we that's led us to now is we're an all arable farm, mainly cereals with a small amount of potatoes and our vegetable enterprise, which we grow a huge variety, small quantity, but huge variety of vegetables to sell through our two retail outlets, the Spud Hut and Farm to Table. And what's driven those changes over the years, Fiona, from what you know of the history? Has it just been reacting to the market, reacting to what people want? You know, when we talk about diversification, is it all about, you know, giving the market and giving uh, giving those people that um, Hazel talks about what they want? It's a bit of both. You definitely need to have a market there for what you want to do, because that's ultimately why you're doing it. But again, going back to what Hazel said, you do need to have the personality and the passion for whichever enterprise it is that you're doing. And um, the reason we stopped pigs was when my grandfather stopped farming, he, my, my dad didn't, wasn't really interested. So his passion was arable and potatoes. So that was the enterprise he kind of drove forward from a business perspective. Um, when we decided to stop livestock altogether, that was only a couple of years ago in 2020. And that decision was mainly made on our staffing availability. A lot of the chaps that work on the farm with us are of the age where it's they don't want to be doing as much of physical rolling out bales and working with cattle you know, can be quite dangerous. So it was a, a reactive business decision to the resources we had available. And what does your typical day if there is such a thing Fiona look like what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis uh, in and in and around the farm and and if you like when you say it comes back to personality what do you what do you really enjoy I think um, one of the great things about this job is that there isn't a typical day which I absolutely love and um, it's one of the reasons that I wanted to come back but as a general rule my role here is um, probably business management is the best Way to put it, I would be the main link with the bank, um, with our solicitors and managing the bookkeeping side of it and things. But I also like to get really involved in what's happening on the farm um, and talking of succession. That is something that will be happening quite soon within our business. So I'm now my dad's right hand and looking at um, learning a bit more about cropping plants and seed rates and the, the kind of more physical side of, the, of running the farm. Um, we manage the two retail outlets, the Spud Hut and the Farm to Table. And another big part that I love of my job is coming up with new ideas for what the business can do, whether that's down the renewable route, the public facing route or new crops that we could look at growing and, and trialling on the farm. And when we've talked about sustainability, Fiona, can you give us maybe a couple of examples of, of what that looks like at, uh, for Westerton farmers? We really have tried to drive that over so the last, I would say, five or six years. So we have a small solar panel installation at 50 kilowatts, which we're looking to increase probably by another 50 kilowatts within the next 12 months. Um, and then in 2019, we installed a ground source heat pump on the farm. So that's a half megawatt ground source heat pump. And that produces heat. There's pipe work that runs underneath the soil on the farm. It gathers the heat from there comes through a couple of engines and we use that to dry all of our cereal crop, heat our workshop, heat our tatty grading shed. Um, the byproduct from the ground source is chill, so that's what we use to chill our cold store for our potatoes. So that's a 100% renewable, um, it's runoff electric, um, which has been a bit of a, a kicker this last wee while with the, the price has gone up, but that's the, the biggest renewable that we have on site, but we're also as a business trying our best to be um, more 
considerate with the decisions that we're making. So we replaced our old kerosene grain dryer with this completely renewable um, form of drying grain. And that's a massive part of our enterprise. And what about some specifics? I believe you've got a, a, a refillery um, and you also uh, do a particular thing with Christmas trees as well. Yes, that's right. So when we opened up the farm shop, one of the things that I really missed from being when I used to live in Aberdeen and I really liked was these refillery shops where you could bring along your own containers and take the exact amount of food that you needed. It really helped reduce the, the food waste aspect in, in our household. So we introduced that. So that's a wide range of cereals and pastas and um, the other non-essentials like chocolate raisins that we have um, available there. We also have refillable refillable freezers so again you can bring along your new container your own containers and fill up the amount of frozen peas that you need or the amount of pre-cut chips that you need and things from the shop so there's a big drive on that and that kind of led us to looking at the Christmas tree aspect because although obviously it is a replaceable and a renewable as in you can grow more we felt there was maybe another level we could take it to so we trialed Christmas tree rental so our customers will rent a potted tree from us for December and um, hopefully keep it alive, take it back to us in January. We'll then look after it for the year, repot it and they can rent it again the following year. Brilliant. So lots, go lots going on there um, in terms of sustainability. Um, Hazel, can you tell us a little bit about your farm? So as well as a lawyer, what are you doing on the farm? What does the farm do? And what about your own challenges in trying to create a, a green, clean and also a profitable and sustainable business? So my husband um, runs just under 200 suckler cows. So just at the start of 2023, we'll be calving about 200 cows, which is usually quite a busy, stressful time of year. So um, yes, it's quite a, a nervous prospect, but it's also very exciting when it, when it all works out well. Um, and in addition to that, um, we... Uh, farm quite a lot of arable land some of that we use to feed the cattle uh, a lot of it's sold as well and we contract farm a couple of smaller farms for some neighbours as well when they had challenges to do with not having young staff to come in and work it um, in terms of what we've been doing um, environmentally I suppose one of the biggest things we did was a, a huge biomass plant we have a lot of cottages on the farm and we were finding that tenants were handing back their keys saying we love living here we love the house we love the view but we can't afford to heat it because it was electric panel storage and as a result the houses were getting damp and it was just a spiraling problem of investment needed um, so uh, we installed a district heating biomass system which has made a huge amount of difference and what is great in this particular winter is our tenants know that they can afford the heating because it's just a static charge that they pay. A lot of those people are elderly with their unlimited incomes and, you know, families with small kids who need a lot of energy resource. Um, some of the other things, I mean, gosh, the challenges, like everyone at the moment, um, fertiliser costs. Pre-Ukrainian war, we were probably looking at about £200 a tonne for fert. We were buying it. At one point, it was at £1,000 a tonne. Um, it has fluctuated, but at the moment, we're probably looking at two to three times what we need, depending on when you buy it for cost. Um, yes, wheat markets are very, very volatile. So if you sell well um, and plan it, you can still make money at it. But that's a huge challenge. And there's a lot more time spent sitting looking at graphs and looking at stock markets, frankly, 
um, to run your business. Um, so there's okay. a lot to it. Some of the other uh, really good things that we're trialing at the moment and have moved into um, is minimum tillage. So traditionally, a field would be completely ploughed, ripped up. So in, and you know, research has shown that that emits a heck of a lot of carbon. Um, so we were sceptical as to how it would work. Where we farm has very heavy clay soil, which takes a lot of work to produce crops out of it. Um, but we've recently invested in some new kit to do that. Um, so like Fiona said, you can trial things on a smaller scale for a year or two. And then if it works out, you know, you've just got to be brave and make the investment. Okay. And we've touched on, you've touched and Fiona's touched on and Richard at the start, some of the problems in terms of in, in terms of extra costs and external factors like the Ukraine war. Which farm businesses do you think are having particular challenges at, at the moment? All of them. Mm. <laughs> Not too, it maybe sounds pessimistic, but um, any business that requires to feed livestock at the moment, um, if you are fattening cattle to put those into the market, um, your feed costs will be through the roof at the moment. Um, if you don't haven't produced your own feed and you've got to buy it in, that costs a lot. Um, pigs and poultry um, are really going through a hard time there. Okay. And what about some of the labour challenges, Richard? What are the kind of labour challenges that rural businesses are facing and what kind of sectors within the farming world are having particular problems with that? So, David, across the whole of the UK, we are suffering from labour shortages across the board, but in particular agriculture. We have traditionally relied on seasonal workers to come in for our soft fruit and for vegetable picking, and we just can't attract those workers. We also have an aging farming population. So it's difficult to attract people. People don't necessarily want to do the hours that farmers have to do, especially dairy farmers that get up well before the crack of dawn. But on the seasonal workers front, visa restrictions and also the low value of the pound, which means these people are taking their labor elsewhere in the European Union where they can take more money home, means that some farmers have had to change their practices. Some fruit has been left to rot on the vine. The other thing to say is that we've got an avian flu problem. And so the egg market has been affected as well. And obviously there's a, there's a lot of challenges there that you've outlined. How, what's your experience of how farmers and, and other rural businesses are reacting to that? Because obviously a lot of the issue here we've heard about is cost, is, is increasing costs of fuel, fertilizer, presumably transport, labor, as well as just heating the premises generally. How well has the farming community in Scotland reacted? What kind of things have they done? Some farmers have done all right this year because the grain prices have gone up with the, the, the war in Ukraine and, and they bought their fertilizer in advance. So some of the arable farmers will do okay this year. It's next year, I think we're going to see a real dip in, in profits and farmers are worried. They're also worried about how uh, central government is going to support them. Uh, we've got changes to, to red, the use of red diesel. So that's going to make transport more expensive. So there are, are a lot of competing factors. One thing that's may well go up is our food prices will go up because farmers aren't going to produce food for nothing. Uh, and uh, they look nervously at the UK government doing trade deals with other part of the world. Is this going to mean cheaper food imports to the detriment of local farmers? Uh, but set against that is the question of food security, food miles and local provenance. So uh, I think farmers will be always good at adapting 
And as Fiona has said, they, they come up with new schemes. So we were pr promoting local produce far more, I think, and putting a premium on that. Okay. And just to bring that to you, Fiona, you know, how have you been affected personally by the rising costs of doing business and how have you reacted to it? The last kind of 18 months has been pretty phenomenal. Um, it's just been one thing after another. You know, there's a, there's a one crisis, then the next, then the next. So we've obviously, Hazel's touched on the fertiliser side of it. We were very affected by that. We have quite a big cereal um, acreage. We were lucky in that we were one of the few farms, I guess, that would have had some crop left from the low input year that we sold at a slightly elevated price. But all that's gonna happen is that's eventually gonna flip, whether it's next year or the year after, we'll have a year where we've had the elevated input costs and not the, the price to reflect that. So the, the fuel costs as well, the cost of red diesel, the cost of kerosene, so any of the kind of fossil fuels that are still being used on the farm, that has gone up hugely. Um, unfortunately, electric tractors are not a thing yet. So we're still using a lot of red diesel, we have combines, we do a, an element of uh, min, minimum tillage, as Hazel spoke about, but we still also cover an acreage with traditional ploughing so that, you know, there are costs, big costs for that. Um, electric is just, I mean, when, when that all happened, that was just, it was very scary. You know, that's a massive, our, our, one of our retail outlets, Farms Table, the shop alone, just for the shop, had to find £800 a month to sit still in, in terms of covering the elevated costs. So the farm as a whole was very scary, it was scary numbers. So you have to adapt your business practices. You have to look at how you're going to work it. We dried all our grain a lot quicker than we normally would. We had less potatoes in the cold store. We didn't run that for as long. We're not planting as big an acreage next year because of the input costs. We're gonna work on something that's a little bit more reliable in terms of market. Um, and then labor is another aspect as well that we've all touched on not just the cost of labour, but actually the availability. Sometimes you just can't get it. And it's it's not possible to run certain operations without the right number of people. And um, if you're lifting tatties, you need a certain number of people to be doing that operation. Otherwise, you, you know, you just can't do it. So that's been a big consideration for the business as well. Okay, thank you. And Hazel, there's lots of challenges here, but let's look at some of the opportunities. Um, Let's look at agritourism first of all. Um, assuming that you can't get people to pay a fortune to stay in a tatty shed, as you as you said earlier on, what good examples have you seen of of, of how farming businesses are, you know, successfully embracing uh, tourism? Well, Shepherd and Wedderburn recently were one of the sponsors of the Scottish Agri Tourism Conference, um, which was just a fantastic showcase of all the brilliant ideas. Um, that are happening in Scotland. I spoke to people that had converted cattle sheds into wedding venues, um, and really they still did look like cattle sheds, um, which to me, I wouldn't want to get married in one because I spend a lot of time in one at weekends, but if you live in the centre of um, a town, you probably would. Um, shipping containers um, that have been turned into lovely on-farm cafes that you can walk in and walk out of. But a common theme that I did find when chatting to all these exciting businesses was they were struggling to know how to price what they were producing. Um, and I don't think they were pricing things high enough because as yet we don't put enough of a value on the story and what's put behind it. And um, what I also noticed was a lot of these businesses, they all started small. They started with someone trundling down the farm road end 
and selling flowers or selling a small amount of produce. I think that's actually how um, Fiona's Farm to Table came about. It started with something very basic and grew into something else. And Richard touched before on, on the provenance thing. And Richard, you might want to come in on the back of Fiona as well here. But Fiona, you've said you're, you're selling directly to the public and, and doing online sales as well. But then you're also selling to large uh, customers as well. Where are we in Scotland in terms of those direct sales? How well are farms doing at making the most of that local provenance and selling at a local level and a regional level? And what more can be done that's maybe not being done so well now? I think if you're a food producer and you know that you're, you've got direct sales yourself, you really do put a big value on the provenance. And certainly a lot of our marketing and a lot of our social media and our story comes back to that provenance, low food miles, the care and the you know the attention that goes into growing and producing the stuff that we sell. What I think we need is a much more joined up approach from loads of other people because we can only shout so loudly. We need a bigger group to come together and help sell that provenance story and you know help point out that yes, you can get um bacon from other countries and you can get your carrots from other countries and your herbs and things but actually it's a lot better to get it from your local producer and I think selling the story to a much bigger and wider community is, is what's needed. Okay Richard do you want to come in on that as well? Well I'm going to say that in Scotland we should be very proud of the fact that we export to the rest of the world and our produce doesn't just come from sort of uh I suppose, meat and, and vegetables, but it comes in what we produce. So we think of the whiskey, the, the brewing, the uh, shortbread we sell, that's all Scottish produce coming through. Um, the other great thing about Scotland and climate change is that we have plenty of water, whereas other parts of the world don't have water. So we are producing something which contains Scottish water and we should be proud of that and able to to project that all over the world there's a purity there think of Scottish salmon which sells around the world and that's a, another part of, of agriculture that we, we we don't always talk about um, but uh, I think we should be proud of, of what we do I was just going to quickly jump in there uh, David on the back of something Richard said about the about Scot Scottish whiskey our local distillery Fetter Cairn have launched an initiative where they are going to be bottling a, a specific batch of whiskey made with grain growing within a 50 mile radius of the distillery. So all of our, we, it's malt and barley that we grow, but we sell to a big merchant. We know it makes Scotch whiskey, but we wouldn't be able to say exactly which distillery it's ended up in. With the care, they're making a big effort Wow. to create this blend that is, is made specifically with Merns malting barley. And I think that's probably an example of what I was speaking about, about a joint up approach. So we can go so far, but by getting, for example, the distilleries involved in it as well and helping to tell our story, that then reaches a bigger audience. That's interesting. And in, in your shop, in the, in the Spud Hut, Fiona, do you sell from other businesses in and around the area as well? Yeah, we do. We sell um, bits and pieces that we don't produce, like honey um, from local producers, jams, marmalades, uh, oats, uh, organic chickens, venison, beef. Um, but we also rely heavily on farms that grow so the same things that we grow, but maybe on a larger scale. So if we've not sowed enough cabbage or cauliflower or whatever, we'll um, work with other local farms to buy in from them to sell directly through our shops here. But you're selling a whole range of products that come from from the immediate area from from Aberdeenshire, yeah. Yeah, and when we opened the Spud Hut initially, I was very set on that I only wanted 
low food like local local produce there so when for example when we came to the end of the onion season in the united kingdom i didn't stock onions i then got a lot of feedback from my customers saying why don't you sell onions we really need onions so what we've gone with now is transparency so if we've got a product for example oranges and bananas that our customers really want to buy Mm. we'll we'll have them there for sale and we'll tell you where they've come from and the customer then can make the decision on whether that's the type of product they want to buy or if they want to buy something that's been produced more locally. Yeah, we're not quite ready for the uh, orange groves or the banana plantations <laughs> in Aberdeen, Aberdeenshire just yet. Maybe well, we're talking about climate change, who knows? Um, Richard, um, one other area where we have seen a lot of creativity in Scotland is, is, is in terms of renewable energy. How well do you think the, the rural community in Scotland has embraced renewables and is this opportunity to do more? David, we really heard from uh, Hazel and Fiona, who both use renewable energy on their farms. And I think that's great. And we are seeing that. We're seeing biomass being used increasingly as well on farms, especially where they've got some wood supply. Uh, they spoke about uh, solar panels. But when we look at our countryside, we increasingly we're seeing very large wind turbines. And farmers, those farmers or landowners who've got land in windy places uh, have been fortunate enough to get these large turbines. There is grid constraint, though. It is an expensive business. It is capital intensive. And so for your ordinary farmer, it's difficult. And we're helping some of our farming clients try and get these big turbines. But there are obstacles. There's grid connections. There's planning permission. There's habitat. um, There's all sorts of neighbors objecting to, to get through. Uh, and I think government can, can, could make it easier for farmers to to access uh, some of the renewable energy aspects. Yeah. And, and what about agroforestry and, and, and woodland as well, Richard? What role has, has that got to play in uh, the sustainable farming future? So the Scottish government has got very ambitious planting targets for new forestry, for new trees. And increasingly, we're seeing marginal hill farms or, or farms in general being sold to big forestry enterprises to plant them out. And this is creating a bit of a tension in the market between those people who prefer farming and food security against these planting targets. And so farmers have been urged to do a bit of tree planting, uh, but of course you can't realize a profit for another 25, 30 years until you can harvest them. So that's some of your land taken up, but there are environmental benefits. They they provide shelter, they provide windbreak, um, and they can also provide an alternative source of income coming further down the line. We're also seeing people interested in carbon sequestration, either in trees or in peatland or just in the ground. And that's a a fairly young market, but we have seen institutional investors willing to take a chance to invest in offsetting their carbon footprint by investing in trees and uh, and peatland. Mm And you, you touched there on carbon, Richard. Obviously, there's a number of ways in which farms can can have carbon benefits, but it is, it's a really complex area. And does do you think that sometimes puts puts farmers off getting involved because of the complexity of the carbon markets? I think so. And I also think it's not regulated. So people don't really know if it's going to come off or not and whether it's going to be like one of these schemes which doesn't you, you get egg in your face. Another aspect is there are more forms to fill, and there's often they often farmers often say this creates money for consultants, but not necessarily money for them. And I know from sending farmers uh, bills of my own, nobody likes getting a bill to pay. So uh, if you make it simple, that, that so much the better. 
Okay, thank you. And we'll just staying with with the kind of broad environment here, Hazel. You know, biodiversity. What what do farmers across Scotland do in terms of biodiversity, and 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 how can they show how their land does create rich and biodiverse habitats? You just stumbled across there something, Richard. When you say how can they show what they're doing, that's really what this debate is all about. I grew up on what would be classed as an intensive farm, yet I remember sitting down when I was rolling barley with my dad and him explaining all the different names of the wildflowers and the weeds that were growing around the edges of the fields. Farmers have been encouraging biodiverse habitats for generations, but it's only now we've got to show and tell people we're doing it, which, as Richard says, is form-filling. And I would really love to see if landowners and land managers could just be left to do the things that they've been doing well all this time. Um, intensive farming is, is kind of a dirty word and people think it's um, at cross purposes with sustainability, but it really isn't. Um, on the farm where my husband and I live, through grants which came down through the Scottish Government, we planted miles and miles of hedging, um, you know, bolstered by good livestock fences either side, made a tremendous difference to how you know we could manage the cattle and graze them outdoors in inclement weather and the bird life has just been astounding to see um so i don't think necessarily it's that farmers need to do things differently it's just we have to fill out another form to say here's how we're doing it differently that's interesting how you say show and tell uh sorry richard do you want to come back in there as well I was going to say, some farmers, I read, read an article recently, was saying, if you're going to get uh, payments for improvements, what you need to show is that your farm at the moment is incredibly environmentally hostile. And then you can say, we're going to do all these good things to make it better, which is <laughs> counter to what farmers are doing. They're actually, on the whole, good custodians of the land. They take pride in what they're doing. But if you're going to get a payment, then you, you would want to try and... Um, and show where you can make improvements where maybe that might be difficult. Okay, well, we've, we've heard there's a lot of challenges here, Richard. Uh, you know, there's a lot of difficulties out there for farmers, but let's finish on a really optimistic note from everybody. So first of all, Richard, are you optimistic for the, the future of farming in Scotland? Does it have a strong and sustainable future? Yes, I've got every faith in Scottish farmers. The farmers are adaptable a lot. They're innovative. Uh, we have great pride in what we produce. Uh, food security will become even more important. Food miles, local provenance. And I, and I think that whilst farmers are never happy, uh, they're forever grumbling either about the weather or the bank or their lawyers. Uh, on the whole, they, they're their own bosses. And that's how they like to be. They get on with it themselves. I'll let Hazel and, and Fiona give their view. Yeah, Hazel, you're a, you're a farmer that if you complain about lawyers, you're effectively complaining about yourself. So um, I don't quite know how that works. So what's your sense? Are you, are you optimistic as a lawyer and a farmer for how, how the future rural Scotland looks? Give us some optimism. Yes, I am an optimistic person. There are challenges there. And as Fiona said, there have been, there are challenges every year. Um, but when a farmer is motivated by wanting to create a future for his or her children, of course they're gonna make it happen. That's one of the great things about doing the job that Richard and I do is we'll be helping families through that process and gradually it'll get to a point where mum and dad starts to disappear away from the phone calls and letters and it's son or daughter coming in. Um, those relationships um, 
are so prevalent throughout the farming community and I think everyone pulls together and gets on with it so yeah there's a great future there. And finally Fiona to you you know Westerton Farmers has adapted and diversified over the years how do you think that will continue and, and how optimistic and hopeful uh, are you for the, the next generation of Westerton? I, I am the same, an optimist at heart. I think you have to be when you work in this industry. So um, very, very, I'm excited about it. I think I really have a, a goal to try and connect the farm and our you know, food production back to the public, do a little bit more of work with schools, colleges, um, up and coming chefs, people that are wanting to work within the food industry and, and help everybody know about how food's produced, where it's produced, how we do it. I think there's in terms of the next generation, I've got three children. Um, my son, Matthew, is absolutely farming daft at the moment. I, I think most four-year-olds are. So my plan is to try and create a business that doesn't necessarily need somebody to work in agriculture to take forward. There's a, there's a management aspect there. There's a retail aspect. So I guess, as Hazel mentioned, in terms of sustainability for our business, we want to continue to be green. We want to continue to reduce our carbon footprint and work as best we can from that aspect, but we also want to build up a business that can go down to the next generation. So there's a lot of work to do, but it's going to be really exciting. That's great. Thank you very much indeed to Fiona Smith of Western Farmers and to Hazel Anderson and Richard Leslie from Shepherd and Wedderburn for their tremendous insights today. Today's episode uh, was part of the Sustainable Scotland podcast series produced by The Scotsman and delivered today in partnership with Shepherd and Wedderburn. Is your organisation striving to make Scotland a more sustainable place to live and work? And would you like to connect to the Scotsman's significant and influential audience online and in print? Become a guest on this podcast and tell your own story. And for more information, email podcasts at scotsman.com. Listen out for more episodes of Sustainable Scotland on all your main podcast platforms. And Sustainable Scotland is presented by me, David Lee, and produced by Andrew Mulligan. <laughs>